Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot. And sitting opposite me is Liam. How are you? Very well, thank you, sir. You? <laughs> yeah, very well, thank you, mate. It's back to rainy old England. Yes, gorgeous. Doesn't it feel like sort of our natural resting state, you know? As two people that have lived here all our lives, when it's cold and grey and rainy, I kind of feel more comfortable. Well, do you know what? Something it's kind like of... like Stockholm Syndrome. Something kind of weird happened last night. I was standing out in the back garden having a fag and there was a noticeable cold snap in the air. And I just stood there and I thought to myself, I'm looking forward to Christmas. Wow. <laughs> that is a hell of an admission. Live on mic, ladies and gentlemen. And it was so strange. Because <laughs> instead of feeling pissed off, I just had this, you know, oh, you know, maybe throughout the autumn months, might do something nice for bonfire nights. Yeah. And then leading on to that Christmas. You're getting the Christmas spirit already? Wow. Well, I like Christmas. I like Christmas. I've always I've, loved Christmas. I've never been a big fan of the build-up, though. I like the actual day. You know, like... Oh, no, the build-up's um, horrendous. Mm. But yeah, there's just something, something about that, you know. It was just a little cold snap in the air that did it. Usually completely a bore cold weather. Yeah. There was just something about it. It kicked in a bit of nostalgia, you know, like walking through, like, the town market. You know, where we lived, where you had all the lights. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Know, yeah, it just brought like a wistful, like uh, sort of memories of that to mind, like fleetingly. My God, we are. We're, we're reaching a stage of maturity I don't think I'm quite ready for. Yeah, it's just yeah. very weird for me because I'd usually be like, fuck, stay fucking cold, piss me off, fuck yeah. hell. <laughs> no. But, you know. Yeah. yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, we're recording today's the 30th of September and I saw my first Christmas advert two days ago. <laughs> and um, the, the Lifetime Hallmark um, Christmas TV movie thing is happening oh, along the channels at the moment um, I watched a load of them last year uh, not of my own volition and they've all got the same plot which is kind of interesting I found it's someone someone either moves to a small town or they're living in a small town and someone moves in like a, a dashing hunky young dude for example and there's a big crisis because it's often something to do with Christmas cookies or Christmas might not happen this year. And there's a bit of turmoil about that. And gradually the male lead and the female lead gradually become closer. Whichever one of them moved to the town, then suddenly one of them's not very Christmassy, but the other one convinces them to be Christmassy. And by the end, they are very Christmassy and they're about to start their new lives together when the film ends. And that is every single one of these movies. I mean, every single one. It's amazing. You can get literally thousands of films out of that one plot. But and some people, people love them. My missus loves them. love them. Yeah. yeah. But some people love them not even in guilty pleasure way. They actually love them, love them. No, I know, yeah. And I personally find that disturbing. Yeah, it is a little bit. Isn't it? It's like, what happened when you were a kid, man? I mean, I like Christmas, but Jesus Christ. You know what I can't stand as well, actually? Christmas music. Christmas music. Yeah, yeah, I, I do actively like Christmas. I'm not that miserable, but Christmas music drives me up the fucking There's hell. not one Christmas oriented song you like. Uh, the Pogues, Fairy Tale in Fairy New Tale York. Fairy Tale in New York. Only because it's sort of an anti-Christmas song, and I kind of like appreciate that about it, and I like the Pogues. It's got lots of verbal abuse in it. It does, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a pissed-up Christmas, and I can kind of relate to that. But no, you know the one I hate the most, actually? I, I'm George Michael, Last Christmas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, I can't stand <clears throat> it. My, my, um, mine is uh, Driving Home for Christmas by Chris Rea. Oh, really? Yeah, I, that one gets you. Oh, I... Fuck, I remember, actually, it was, remember a few years back, it was on the jukebox down our old watering hole, and one of our most beloved um, senior bartenders 
he said to me, Liam, I fucking hate this song. And I said, I fucking hate it too. Oh, thank you for validating that. You know, <laughs> I used to work in that very bar and there were some people that came in with the explicit idea. Yeah, this is why they came out, was to have a few beers and listen to Christmas tunes on the jukebox. And um, I, I looked upon them with great disgust. Yeah. But I had to put up with it because that was my living wage at the time. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we, we've actually done the opposite of what we intended here. We started off moaning that people talk about Christmas and Christmas happens too soon. And we just spent the first good four minutes of the podcast banging on about it. So let's instead, shall we, get back on topic and have some film news. Is film news a little bit, got a bit more life in it this week? A little bit, yeah. A little, yeah. Well, a little bit's better than that. I will admit it's not wonderful, but it is better than last week. There should be a bit more meat on the bone here. Let's start off with this one from filmnews.co.uk. George Clooney and Brad Pitt's new film has been bought by Apple Original Films. So the uh, currently untitled thriller, which will be written and directed by Spider-Man Homecoming director John Watts, was the subject of a bidding war last week, but according to The Hollywood Reporter, the fledgling studio has seen off competition from the likes of Sony, Lionsgate, Netflix, Amazon, Annapurna, Universal, MGM, and Warner Brothers to snap up the rights to the project. The movie will see the two actors star together as lone wolf fixers assigned to the same job. And the pair are also producing the project under their own labels, George's Smokehouse Pictures and Brad's Plan B Entertainment. Sorry, what's the name of the motion picture again? It's currently untitled. Currently untitled. Uh, all, all these companies apparently have been shitting themselves of the fact that this is a, a Brad Pitt, George Clooney vehicle, and thereby is going to sell a hell of a lot of cinema tickets, I would imagine. I would expect so, yeah. There's a nice little bit here actually in the article. While being a relative newcomer to the industry, Apple Original Films already has some other huge projects in the pipeline, including Killers of the Flower Moon, which is directed by Martin Scorsese and stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, Spirited, a musical retelling of the classic A Christmas Carol Tale, featuring Will Ferrell, Ryan Reynolds, and Octavia Spencer, and Emancipation, which uh, Will Smith stars in and produces, and Raymond and Ray, which features Ethan Hawke and Ewan McGregor. So this is Apple Original Films really buying up some big-name stars, spending a lot of money. Yeah, hell yeah. I imagine this is a reaction to Netflix's success in the TV market, whereas Netflix for films sort of goes up and down a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, and you know what? Um, speaking of um, original company films, I actually watched a couple of those uh, Welcome to the Bloom House uh, anthologies for Prime Video. Oh yeah, we talked about those a while ago. Oh my God, they're so fucking bad. Oh really? What I watched one called Evil Eye. Yeah. It's one of the most hilariously awful pieces of dog shit I've ever seen. Oh, it, kinda... had, it had a really, really intriguing premise. I love the premise. Uh, it is lifetime tier dog shit. Really? Yeah. Ah, well. I was kind of hoping there might be at least a, a couple of gems hiding out. Well, the they, there, they've but... they've got some upcoming ones. Uh, I think the Blumhouse Prime partnership. There's, a, there's one, I think there's a comedy horror coming out called Bingo Hell. I think it's a bunch of geriatrics who love their bingo hall. And it's on the cusp of being sold to the Dark Lord himself. I would love the premise immediately. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this premise sounds great. And I just, and but it's one of those premises where you just, you know, because the premise is so out there, you just hope even harder that they don't drop the ball with it. They pick up the ball and they just keep running with it. Because that sounds really fun. It does, yeah. But, um, yeah, as always, fingers crossed. Mm, absolutely. Uh, my second article here, this is from Collider.com. Gladiator sequel will be ready to go after Napoleon movie Kit Bag, says Ridley Scott. Oh, is this the Kit Bag? Is this the one with the Joaquin in it? Uh, yes, yes. I don't know why I read out that title with such weird intonation. 
I, I was reading that entirely wrong in my head. But yes, uh, Ridley Scott has two major film releases this year, The Last Duel and House of Gucci, but it seems like he's already looking ahead to his next ambitious feature. In an interview with Empire, Scott confirmed that he'll be working on his highly anticipated sequel to Gladiator after he films Kitbag, his Joaquin Phoenix-led Napoleon Bonaparte historical picture. It sounds like he won't be wasting any time returning to 180 AD once he is finished with the ruthless French emperor telling Empire, I'm already having the next Gladiator written now. So when I've done Napoleon, Gladiator will be ready to go. Rumors suggest that Kitbag might release sometime in 2023, which means the Gladiator sequel will most likely not arrive until 2024 and so beyond. Ridley Scott is doing Gladiator 2. Gladiator 2, The Revenge. Yeah. <laughs> um, supposedly the rumors about this are that it's going to be uh, much more focused. Well, yeah, I, I had a debate with myself earlier. Do we spoil Gladiator on the podcast? Everyone's seen Gladiator, right? I, I would bet a hefty sum of money that you wouldn't really be committing a massive fox pads yeah. to do that. <laughs> yes, well, um, Maximus doesn't make it. <laughs> it's the first time we've ever done a spoiler on the free podcast, but I mean, come on, everyone's seen Gladiator, right? So this will reportedly follow the story of Lucius, the son of Lucilla, and the nephew of Commodus. In the film, Lucius looked up to Maximus after Maximus saved him and his mother. Now, I heard rumors of quite a while ago that Ridley Scott was working on a Gladiator 2 script, except it was going to feature uh, Maximus in the afterlife and sort of interacting with the Roman gods and having an influence back down on Earth. Which uh, I, I actually thought that was quite a good concept. I could kind of see, I mean, in, Ridley Scott, in Ridley Scott's <laughs> hands, I mean, in a lesser director's hands, I'd say that was wank. Yeah, I'm with you. But in Ridley Scott's hands, I kind of wanted to see that film. But regardless, this is going to be. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. Like in Ridley Scott's hands, does, would that pique my curiosity in a heavier fashion yeah it would mm. on paper just blank blank it on paper if, if it was that, Paul that, W.S. Anderson yeah be, <laughs> but yeah but just I mean just any that 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 idea just in and of itself sounds terrible in my on, um, humble opinion but well there you go you've got your wish anyway <laughs> and I'm really really curious about um, Kitbag as well yeah no yeah now Kitbag yeah I'm 100% um, really really um so I recall us discussing it before, and it's not that I, I didn't necessarily forget about it, but uh, it's just like the, the massive onslaught of stuff to get through. But I always thought, like, that's a hell of a title. And I remember us like, finding the definition at one point, I think. you know, mm. Didn't it come from some sort of saying, some sort of military saying? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember our own trivia now. But it, yes, there, there was some sort of Napoleonic soldiers saying that involved the word kitbag. Yeah. But the fact that it's, you know, it's a Bonaparte biopic and it's just got that kind of, you know, bisyllabic, punchy title like that instead of some grand, ridiculous, yeah. the last, the first, the, 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 this... You know, it just, it's nice and punchy and unusual. I love it when uh, Ridley Scott does historical epics as well because he's got a, such an artist's eye for shots, set, and setting. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, yeah. Uh, even Kingdom of Heaven, which is a very, very flawed movie, primarily for Orlando Bloom. But, uh, you know, it, it's not a great film, but I loved I'm really, really interested in the Crusades, and I thought he got the, the Crusades setting, well, sort of medieval warfare, so right. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does with um, the Napoleonic era wars. Well, I mean, we've said, I mean, his first ever film, his directorial debut, The Duelists from 77, which is set in the Napoleonic era. I mean, Mm. that film is virtually flawless. Yeah. yeah, And it was his first run after years as an ad man. So, quite possibly my favorite uh, Keitel performance in that as well. Oh, yeah. Underrated film, The Duelists. It's horrendously underrated. It's um, it deserves the love it gets, but uh, it also deserves a hell of a lot more. 
Mm. Uh, next article here is from NBCnews.com. Netflix said on Monday that the first season of Bridgerton was its most watched TV series ever, with 82 million subscribers tuning in for at least two minutes. <laughs> why, why does that count? At, at least, least two minutes. At least two minutes of Bridgerton <laughs> you watched. Out of a, I believe that was a 10 episodes first season run. But anyway, in its first 28 days on the service, uh, Ted Sarandos, Netflix's co-CEO, released Netflix's latest hit list of its most popular TV shows and movies while speaking at the Code Conference in Beverly Hills, California. Sarandos showed a slide that included the top 10 in each category. Bridgerton, a period piece about 19th century British royalty produced by Shonda Rhimes, premiered in December. There's French series Lupin, part one, and season one of The Witcher, a fantasy series starring Henry Cavill, tied for second on the list with 76 million accounts. Among movies, the action film Extraction earned the number one spot. The film about a captured CIA agent was watched by 99 million accounts in its first 28 days. Bird Box, a post-apocalyptic horror film, and the action comedy Spencer Confidential were the second and third most popular films, according to the company. Um, this all makes me kind of pleased, actually. Didn't you review Extraction extremely positively, if I remember correctly? I thought Extraction was really great bubblegum. Mm. I still haven't got around yeah. to seeing it, but I remember you you being very positive. Yeah, I mean, it, it just, uh, you know, essentially it promises uh, video game energy, beat them up, shoot them up, just a consummate popcorn thrill ride, and that's exactly what it delivers. And, um, you know, even though you're not watching it uh, for the character study, as it were, I thought Hemsworth turned in like a good ass-kicking performance. It's, it, again, it's one of those movies where if you want action, it will fucking give, it your action, give action to you in spades. Mm. And it's very successful in that regard as just a turn-your-brain-off uh, action thriller, um, 100%. But a lot of people slated it. Um, and again, it's one of those instances where they slated it for not for not doing things that it never purported to do in the first place. Sure, yeah. It's like, oh, this uh, big, dumb, loud action thriller isn't cerebral enough for me. Well, who's actually the fucking idiot? <laughs> well, from my uh, TV critic perspective as well, I mean, Bridgerton, I, I review positively. I mean, it's a bit... Uh, you know, period piece, fluffy romance kind of thing, but it's a very well done version of that. And I liked how vivid and, and vibrant it was. I did enjoy it. Uh, Lupin, I thought, was very, very well done as well. And season one of The Witcher, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's definitely got its flaws. I talked about it quite recently with the kind of broken time shifting mechanic that it's got. But it's actually, I, I enjoyed it more on the second watch. And as a big fan of the games and the books, I thought it actually did a really good job at the universe. I'm anxiously awaiting season two. And I think Henry Cavill is the, the right piece of casting on that as well. So to be honest, I mean, this is all pretty good. These are all things that we review positively. We seem to be doing well. They seem to, you know, the worldwide Netflix audience seems to agree with us, at least in terms of viewing figures. Mm. How about that? Well, that is good. Mm. Warm and fuzzy feelings all around. <laughs> And speaking of Henry Cavill, actually, just a little piece at the end here. He has been speaking out recently about being very keen to explore the idea of playing a James Bond villain. James Bond villain? Yeah. The 38-year-old actor who is best known for playing Superman has revealed he'd love to speak to the makers of the long-running film franchise about starring in a Bond movie. Now, for a long while, Henry Cavill was uh, one of the bookies' top-rated favorites to appear as the next Bond. So I think this is kind of interesting is that he's now, because obviously I believe they're looking for casting and have some ideas about the next Bond at the moment because as it's been impossible to escape and we very nearly got through this news article without mentioning it, uh, No Time to Die released this week or at least had its big premiere At this, this week. point, I 
don't give a shit. Yeah. The reviews have been very good so far. Again, yeah. I haven't gone reading into them, but I've seen a lot of them. I mean, I, got, I, you know, I, I, will, I will go and watch it if necessity calls. Oh, uh, I'd be really interested to hear your review of it. Yeah, yeah but just uh, I suppose after all of that stop, start, on, off, it's just like... Uh, yeah. Meh. Apparently, <laughs> it, it seems to have paid off. Apparently, it's quite a... Uh, Exciting, pacey, deep Bond film, whatever that. Oh, means. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cast instantane- instantaneous doubt on that. It just, uh, it just, it's very much a whimper as opposed to a bang after all of the incessant announcements and then cancellations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you know, true. but maybe when you get to the cinema, maybe you might be surprised. Maybe this. Will I be, hope uh, so. Yeah, because uh, you're a big fan of um, Casino Royale, aren't you? Really love Casino Royale. That uh, that is primarily for old uh, Mad Sazler Shifra. That's true. To be perfectly, but you honest. got a Rami Malek in this one. He normally turns in a uh, a good performance, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. The last thing I saw him in the Little Things was pretty horrendous, but that's not necessarily his fault. <laughs> but yes, anyway, Henry Cavill is apparently uh, really, really pushing. Very much like he pushed for the role of Geralt in The Witcher. He's got a thing about when he really wants to play a role, he just sort of bombards people with it until someone eventually gives him an audition. But yeah, I'd quite like to see him as a Bond villain. I think that'd be a cool switch around to take someone that's in contention for being Bond and instead making him a villain instead. Well, of you said, I mean, I, I mean, even though like Geralt is the protagonist and the and the hero, or maybe arguably anti-hero of which you just you said that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Cavill was, he was really, really effective at communicating like a really sort of dangerous and threatening energy. Yeah, and just being surly and pissed off. And yeah, that sort of dangerous thing, that guy, that's that thing the character needs of being, um, he's not a, a sociable, nice guy. He's actually a bit of a dick, but he's got good principles underneath it all, you know, all that kind of stuff. It, yeah. Yeah, he actually, he actually got that quite good. So to play a, a Bond villain, always these flawed people that had a terrible past and now they've turned evil and bought a cat. You know, I can see Henry Cavill doing it. Well, it's got to be, you know, I mean, as much as I love, what is it, Robert Carlyle, uh, the, you know, that era of uh, Bond villains, you know, oh, I've got a bullet in my brain that isn't killing me. It's just making me impervious to pain and increasing my physical strength. Mm. I mean, that kind of shit is dumb. It's fun, <laughs> but it's dumb. Well, that's the Pierce Brosnan yeah. Bond sort of in a, in a word there, isn't it? It is, yeah. But, you know, the kind of villains, you know, some people are very, I mean, I, I run into more people than not that are, kind of very hit and miss with the, the Craig bombs as opposed to liking all of them released so far. Mm. But, I mean, in terms of like Le Chiffre and, uh, what is it, Silva, is it the old Javier Bardem's character? Yeah, yeah. Is it Manuel Silva? I can't remember, but I, really, I thought that as antagonists, those two were great. Yeah, yeah. they were fucking scary for a start. They were actually scary, so. One thing the Bond franchise has always been good at is casting. And I should point out as well, actually, after saying that all the Pierce Brosnan Bond films are dumb, he is actually my favourite Bond. I just thought the films were dumb, mostly. You know? oh, I thought Pierce Brosnan's turn as Bond was fucking fantastic. I kind of hate that. I mean, I like loved Goldeneye. Um, Tomorrow Never Dies was okay. Uh, the World Is Not Enough was all right, but it had some silliness in it. And then you got Die Another Day and all that kind of... Yeah. It just went sillier and sillier to the point of the joke's not even funny anymore. You know what I mean? It needed that reboot with Daniel Craig. I mean, I, I, I mean, hope it continues going in that direction. The right, and I don't, mean any, I don't mean this in a damning way at all or a dismissive way. It's kind of said with a sprinkling of love to it, but whilst you can demarcate the Roger Moore bombs as being explicitly silly and uh, reaching parody level, I think that James Bond as a franchise is pretty dumb. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the, the Craig ones were purposefully infused with a bit more grit than the others. But even, I mean, I love Sean Connery's Bond, but the films are just narratively and 
what happens in narratively incidental ways and just the stories itself is just stupid. It did make me but laugh. it's enjoyable. I was watching some uh, daytime TV earlier and they had their film critic on and he was talking about how um, you know, this is a much more representative Bond. And I think you know, that's all very well and good and I think that's the right thing to do. But at the same time, it did make me giggle in the fact that, yeah, one thing the Bond films have always been known for is their realism. <laughs> you know, like, but the, the fact that you got you know female characters that aren't simply love interest for Bond, I think, is absolutely the right thing to do. But I'm curious to see the film, and I'm curious as to uh, as to what you think of it as well. So we definitely will be reviewing. No I don't argue about. against inclusion. It's just that, and I'll, one just to briefly finish it, like, there does seem to be um, a very frustrating and high number of people who forget that f- films are fantasies. Yeah, they can be realistic and stuff, and there's some really great cinema verite stuff. But primarily, and Bond is probably one of the most fantastical of all. Exactly. Well, you know, yeah. And when something is fantastical, i.e., its its sort of announced objective is not to pay heed to real life, real world, deeply entrenched issues, then to I think to attack it for not doing so, I just I don't know. I just just never sat well with me. Is James Bond is a big, loud, dumb, ridiculous fantasy franchise. That's it's his entire fucking purpose. In cinematic terms, anyway. I mean, Fleming may not have had that precise intention with the novels, but the films are 100% that. So to go like, well, it doesn't do this. Well, I, I, I just think... But that, is it fun? That's yes. what you want out of it, isn't yeah. it? Is, is it fun? Are the action sequences cool? Does it move along at a good pace? Was there a good bit where Bond threw a man off a bridge? Do you know what I mean? That's what you're looking for out of a out of a Bond. If you film, want a it? fucking academic treatise, go read one. <laughs> Sorry, but it's you know I just think you're blaming things that don't really deserve to be blamed. Sure, sure, sure. Anyway, all contentious stuff this week. We did Christmas without realizing it, and yeah, we probably pissed off some Bond fans, but who cares? Anyway, Liam. Yes. This is the part of the show where you do two film reviews. It is indeed. What do you have for us this week? Well, um. During last year's wonderful and splendiferous lockdown, I was coasting through lots and lots of internet pages, film-related as I usually do, and um, came across a very, very intriguing-sounding film that I was desperate to watch, uh, but then I found out that it had only been uh, screened at festivals and it wasn't due for any kind of cinematic or VOD release and well, until this year at the time, but it was anyone's guess, so I was quite frustrated with that. But then... I was flicking through Netflix of all places the other night, the last place I expected to see it turn up. But it's on there. And this is a film called Surge. And um, anyone who follows my Twitter account probably see I posted about this glowingly very recently, but I'll get into why. Surge, this is a film directed by uh, Aniel Carrier. It's uh, his feature-length debut after a multitude of shorts. And um, uh, several of his short films starred, you know, Ben Whishaw, Yes, yeah, yeah. The voice of Paddington, many people know him as, and he was on the various other British television programs, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, um, he has made a few short films over the past decade or so with Carrier, and uh, he also, Wishaw also takes the focal role in Surge, which is, is um, yeah, as I said, his directorial debut. And uh, Ben Wishaw stars in Surge as Joseph. Now, Joseph is... Um, a youngish guy, and he works in airport security. He is one of the people during the security checks. He asks you to step through the metal detector, place your arms out, let me search you. Have you got this? Blah, de, blah, de, blah, de, blah. Pretty sure he's working in Heathrow. And um, right off the bat, we understand that Joseph 
he's clearly been doing this for a number of years because this guy is, for me, he, he just epitomized burnout. All the time he looks sullen and unconfident and com- constantly brooding and glum and jittery and nervous. And he, he just clearly gets no satisfaction from his job the proximity that his job forces him to have to other people, especially people he doesn't know, clearly makes him very uncomfortable. And he just cannot wait to clock out of every single shift. Um, At the end of which, he always goes back to a solitary flat uh, where he has a very obnoxious neighbor always revving a fucking quad bike engine outside at God knows how many hours of the morning. And um, the first time we see him winding down on his own at home after a day at work, he's eating what looks like um, a very, very piss-poor, unsatisfactory ready meal and watching Michael McIntyre on television, and he both seem to leave him completely and utterly emotionally, mentally bereft. And um, then we're introduced to Joseph's parents, Joseph's mother uh, seems to kind of fuss over him in a bit of a helicopterish way, but she communicates a lot of emotional fragmentation. His dad is quite a cold and impatient, angry man. Uh, so his relationship with his parents seems quite troubled and, and pretty fucking sort of cold and just attached, really. This seems to be a guy that doesn't, he seems to be starved of touch, not just merely physical touch, but also real connection, real connect, a connection to something organic, you know, like proper friends, warm familial relationships, something substantive and constructive to do. He just does this horrible soul-sucking job on a daily basis, a thankless rubbish job, um, where he is just, you know, a, a, cog, a cog in the system. It's the, the well-oiled nine-to-five, and he's just part of the cogs that makes it turn. And... Um, for the first sort of 20 minutes, half an hour of film, the tension of this monotony just builds and builds and builds. And Joseph is having a rather tragic looking birthday meal around his parents' house where it's just the three of them in attendance. And he rather intensely drinks a glass of water and he's kind of gets lost in his thoughts and he bites down on the glass and quite badly injures the inside of his mouth, runs out of the house in very, very frenetic, pulsating fashion. And it's this moment that kickstarts Joseph's absolute, consummate, tenfold rebellion against his life and everything that it stands for so far. Like, you know, I mean, it's without trying to give away a massive spoiler, he sort of monumentally quits his job in a just in a fashion where his his id seems to be near uh, materializing in sort of unpredictable physical tics and decisions and just going absolutely apeshit. And then he spends the next 24 hours just on an odyssey through London, just essentially giving in to his impulses and just uh, allowing just all of that feeling of being boxed in and burnt out and just um, feeling crushed and uh, being never being able to take his mind off the dreariness. He just lets all that go and just runs completely wild in a comprehensive fashion. And there is some criminality involved, but nothing too dark or sadistic or anything. He's he's not really a psychopathic guy, Joseph. He's definitely got problems. But uh, it's just about this wild self-liberation. It's like kind of like egoist anarchy almost. Um, I, I loved this movie. I absolutely, I really, really adore some Ben Whishaw's performance. 
of a, a deeply mentally emotionally troubled man who is clearly you know suffering the dreariness of uh, you know nine nine to five punch in punch out uh, work working life work life balance is just absolutely fantastic and the way that Joseph comes out of his cocoon as it were I just completely bought every single second of his performance that it was absolutely brilliant the way that he you know the the way that he verbally communicates the the way that he, he communicates through physical tics and he, it's, almost, it's almost like a look at a spasmodic body language and there's been some contention um and some controversy people thinking that oh is his character supposed to be autistic or mentally ill i think there is some ambiguity there because there are some moments in the film that would suggest that he i, I don't know there are some moments that sort of uh, suggest not, not necessarily, but even if he is, I don't agree with the assertions that the, the film is somehow exploitative in a way. I actually thought that it was a really, really bold and urge, urgent and very interesting um, study of a man who just looks round at every box society has placed him in and just goes, fuck it. And he just comprehensively goes, fuck it. I don't necessarily want to get into exactly what he does because that would be a major spoiler this is a, this is a very experiential film so the less you know going in the better but yeah there's a lot of influences from it similarly to i mean say like recent sort of hits like uncut gems and good time which are both by the safety brothers the way that those films have maintained the panic and anxiety laden momentum this film does that flawlessly it's absolutely like it, 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 I was so many moments in this film. My fucking heart was going like this, and I and I absolutely loved it. It's um, it's scary. It's unpredictable. Um, it's very very full throttle. But there's also a lot of real. There's poignancy in there as well, and not the kind of poignancy that's spoon fed to the audience and saccharine and silly. There's it's real genuine tangible poignancy and the film has like a sort of rather ambiguous yet very poetic last frame uh yeah very poetic final frame and um yeah it was um it i mean it was i've heard a lot of people going like oh you know this this is kind of like if you combined you know the joker and falling down and taxi driving and all this, kind of rather easy reaches easy graphs that i i didn't actually think was fair because i don't think that those films all own some share of a monopoly on main character angry goes, young man yeah, thing, yeah main character goes apeshit because there's a lot of things that distance surge from those other films for number one several of those films their main character has a lot of pathological ideation and uh you know de delusional things that they fixate on in order to try and purge themselves of some kind of trouble or to make something about society better and that doesn't apply to joseph as far as i'm concerned anyway he's just trying to run wild and run free and really experience what he you know what he considers really feeling alive after this, because uh, it's it's implicit within the film that he has undone, uh, this has been an undertaking of his for many years, because Ben Whishaw's communication of just dormant frustration and anger and disappointment and burnout uh, is just absolutely perfect. No, I, I love Surge, a uh, whole gamut of emotions running through there, really, really well directed, amazing for a debut feature. Um, yeah, I just I give this film top marks. I thought it was brilliant, and you can find it on Netflix. I really, really recommend it because it's, it's just one of my favourite cinematic experiences of this century, with no exaggeration. 
Wow. Yeah. Hell of a glowing review. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. And then, in similar fashion to as I have done recently, I went a bit further down the Netflix rabbit hole not long after watching Surge. And I was kind of just going through recent releases, recent movie movie end series that have been released within the last month on Netflix. Oh, you know, what kind of things have not, not been advertised, at least to the extent that I would have seen them. And that's when I came across a title that sort of leapt out at me because uh, knowing me, it has a rather sinister and horrendous sounding title. <laughs> and I always go for stuff like sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. And um, so I decided to watch Intrusion. Now, this was released um, on Netflix uh, last week, actually. Or maybe, just, yeah, eight, about eight days ago from now. So, yeah, kind of last week. And, uh, yeah, this is a psychological thriller directed by Adam Selkie and written by Christopher Sparling, who has uh, written several kind of funky and mad out-there thrillers like Mercy and ATM. And um, this stars uh, Frida Pinto and Logan Marshall Green as the Parsons, Henry and Mira Parsons. They're a married couple, and they have just moved from the big city out to sort of bogan bumfuck nowhere. I think it's somewhere in the southeastern, or southwestern United States, rather. And um, Mira is a psychotherapist for um, younger people, and Henry is an architect. And Henry has actually built this um, new house that they, they are moving into. It's this very cut-off kind of ultra-modernistic high-tech house that he has he blueprinted and worked out and he built from the ground up for them to kind of uh, grow. He says at one point in the film, you know, I, you know the, the notion of us growing old together needed to be completed by us having a proper home, not a house, a home. So, like, they've got this wonderful little patch that is entirely theirs, just out in the middle of nowhere. Mira is a troubled woman, really, because uh, she's recently gone into remission from cancer. And uh, this has left her very, very shaken, obviously, because that's an extremely close call. It's, like, naturally going to affect anyone very deeply on a psychological level. And... Um, Mira's kind of sort of nervy and quite edgy person, despite the fact that Henry constantly reminds her that he is her husband and he loves her very much and anything she wants. There is no limit, you know, any kind of support she needs, anything. He is there for her. Henry does seem to be a very, very supportive spouse. There's no neglect on his part whatsoever. He's a pretty damn doting, doting husband, you could say. But uh, yeah, Mira just... Yeah, she's really trying to get back to normal. And, um, the well, as the film opens, the couple are setting out on a date night, you know, going so far as to leave their cell phones behind. So there is absolutely unbroken communication, real, real genuine communication between the two of them. And they have a lovely evening. And when they come back, they find the house absolutely trashed. It's trashed. They've been burgled. And obviously, Mira freaks the fuck out. They call the police. You kind of have your stock local police chief who's a bit like, oh, you guys moved in from the big city. Oh, you designed this house yourself. It's a bit weird that you didn't put an alarm system in. Why didn't you put an alarm system in? What a silly man. You're an architect and you design things for a living and you didn't put an alarm system in this house that you built. What kind of stupid motherfuckery? I didn't say that necessarily. <laughs> but that's the inference. Yeah, you yeah. can tell that he's absolutely... Th in fact, the police chief is played by... Robert John Burke of Dust Devil that we talked about not too long ago. I like Robert John Burke. But um, Mira is obviously, again, 
a world was turned upside down by this another horrible, shocking, intrusive event. Not only is she now dealing, you know, not only she recently had to deal with something that was intrusive to her in a very organic sense in her own body, but now this new home that was supposed to be a respite, you know, a place to forget everything that happened before. Now that's been encroached on. They try to get back into normal after this, but then she starts hearing weird noises around the house. And she starts noticing her husband behaving very strange as well. Henry starts being all shifty and doing bizarre things, doing things that are out of place, and then coming up with very, very quick and convenient-sounding explanations for them. And Mira thinks, hmm, something is not quite right here. And then she starts to discover little bits and pieces that link her husband to the intruders that broke into the home. And she digs and digs deeper, and she thinks she's at least convinced that she is uncovering some very, very unseemly goings-on between a local family connected to the break-in who have a girl that's got a daughter that's gone missing and her husband's weird, unexplained machinations. It's pretty simple yeah, so far. Yeah, done, 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 as we say. Now, this film got really, really bad reviews. I've read reviews that absolutely slated the living shit out of this film. And... While it does have flaws, and it definitely has flaws, I don't think it's as bad at all as what a lot of the other critics, the, the shit that the other critics are flinging at it. Yeah, there, is, there are portions of the film where the acting is ropey, to the extent where I was sitting there thinking, oh, you, you really needed to have worked over that. You know, mm. you should have done multiple takes Another there before you tell on that. And, you know, yes, yeah, some of the dialogue doesn't land a bit. Um... You know, there there are certain bits of characterization that really could have, uh, it really, really could have used some work. But that being said, and yes, there was some, there's some camera work in the film as well. There's some quick cuts and techniques that really did not need to fucking be in there. And they made it look, they made it look like a Netflix film, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Outside of those, and I'm not trying to sort of minimise those because they are distracting, but outside of those, I actually found this to be a reasonably enjoyable mystery thriller. It's not completely bereft of predictability, but the journey there and the weird things that Mira unearths and the way that she unearths them and the, and the builds of suspense getting there, I enjoyed them. I enjoy. Uh, there was there was vicarious thrill there. It actually is uh, somewhat effective in communicating um, the suspense and the dread that it very much hopes to do. Uh, it is in no way ten out of ten. As I said, you don't go into this expecting. Like, oh, the, the the critics said it was dog shit, but it's actually absolutely fabulous. It's not absolutely fabulous, but if you act, if you want a sort of uh, bizarre mystery thriller that at least for me went down far seedier and more gnarly make-you-take-a-shower routes than I was expecting and did it in a fashion where I thought, well, you know, top points for sort of, you know, diving into the murkiness because Mirror essentially makes discoveries that, um, discoveries that I thought they were going to be sort of boilerplate weirdo stuff but they're actually a little bit more sicker than that, as far as I'm concerned, without trying to give too much away. And, yeah, I actually think the conclusion it builds to end the journey there, 
um, I think that it's been really unfairly shat on. Don't go in expecting a great film. I'd say go in expecting a sort of average to sort of, you know, it's oh, it's not bad sort mm. of film. Don't expect any more than I that. I had to say when I looked this up earlier because I hadn't heard of it. You thought it looked like dog shit. Well, no, I, I saw the uh, reception section of the Wikipedia yeah. page and yeah, it was getting sort of three out of 10 stars and things like that. And I thought, oh, okay, so there's a high likelihood that you were going to slate it. But yeah. there's some merit there. Oh, yeah, yeah, because early on in the film, when I saw those nuggets of ropey acting mm. and I saw stuff that just seemed kind of ill-fitting in terms of dialogue and the delivery of said dialogue... I was very much feeling, uh, oh, God, how much more of this is there to get through? But mm. then, as I said, after that, the way that the screenplay progresses and uh, the way that Mira finds things out, um, I there was actually a lot about it that I enjoyed. I enjoyed the suspense. I enjoyed the, the, the repulsiveness of the antagonistic elements in the film. And, uh, yeah, after, after the credits rolled, I thought to myself... That wasn't that fucking bad. It wasn't great. It was just about good. It was average. And yeah, there was stuff about it that definitely needs work. But I was expecting an absolute horrible, irredeemable piece of crap. And it's not. So, yeah. That's another great quote from yeah. Poster right there, isn't <laughs> yes. it? I was expecting a horrible, irredeemable piece of crap. And it's not. It's not. Yeah. It's not. It's just, it, again, you know, you, you want to, you know, you want a, a weird thriller that's got nastiness and suspense in there. And it doesn't. It, it doesn't do it in a terribly original way. But it, it again, the reviews would have you believing that this is one of the most just completely narratively irredeemable films where you can guess. You can literally. Get, you might be able to work out some twists later on. But it would have a lot of critics would have you believe that this has the sort of screenplay where you can guess every oncoming millisecond of what's about to happen next. And that's not actually true. It's not actually true. There were moments of suspense that were effective. There were discoveries where you sat there thinking, "Okay, oh holy shit, this is pretty weird and kind of fucked up. Where's this going to go?" And yeah, if you if you don't see it, you're not necessarily going to miss out. But it's not dog shit. Okay, hey. so <laughs> those those critics are not being very very fair, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, then. Well, on that note, TV of the week. TV of the week. Yes, and this week I have been watching. Um, <laughs> no, this week I have been watching. Uh, Reservation Dogs. Heard anything about this one? Nope, not mm. at all. This is a comedy television series created by Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi. Okay, cool. Yeah, for FX Productions. And um, if you're into your TV review stuff, if you follow TV review blogs and stuff like that, this has been getting a hell of a lot of push and um, some glowing reviews. I thought, wow, I need to get on this. But it is one of those ones that is unfortunately stuck to a terrestrial TV schedule and as such has been releasing one episode a week. So I've waited for the entire thing to finish and then watched it all in one sitting because it's only eight episodes long and there's half an hour an episode. So if you were watching this in dribs and drabs, I kind of feel sorry for you. People really, I'll tell you nowadays, people really aren't used to waiting two months for that sort of thing, are they? You know, if it's eight week, eight episodes in one per week, if it's not like bang right there readily, that's likely to hurt viewing figures for that. Yeah, or, I think so. I think you're right. Um, I think we've been spoiled now by the idea that yeah. series just review, well, released rather on mass. And mm. uh, I'm 
personally a fan of that. Yeah. But yeah, this is one I've had sitting on the back burner for quite some time because I've seen the critical reception it's been getting. Again, didn't uh, read any reviews or watch any reviews prior to my watching of it, so I didn't colour my opinion. But I couldn't help but notice it was getting a hell of a lot of positive feedback. And with Taika Waititi being one of the co-creators, um, you know, I, that's uh, a very obvious signal. You know what I mean? But anyway, let's do some setup. So... This essentially follows the lives of four teenage kids on a Native American reservation in Oklahoma. And one of the co-creators, obviously not Taika Waititi because he's from New Zealand, but Sterling Harjo is a Native American himself Mm. and grew up on a reservation. So you've immediately got that sort of realism thing kicking in. Uh, Our four teenagers are Elora, played by Devery Jacobs, Bear, played by Defero Wunatai. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Cheese, played by Lane Factor. And Willie Jack, played by Paulina Alexis. And we first find them hijacking a delivery truck full of potato chips, or as we would call them in the UK, crisps. <laughs> and so you've got this sort of um, heist movie montage at the start of this. Very of crisps. Mind, yeah, <laughs> very much it's reservation dogs, right? There's a heist right at the start of it where they're hijacking this truck off of this uh, very dim-witted, and you feel quite sorry for him and learn a bit more about him later, actually, but this security guard that's driving this truck, delivering crisps to the neighborhood, gets hijacked by these small-town hoodlums with bandanas over their faces. And this is all set to uh, the Stooges' uh, I Want to Be Your Dog as well. So it's very punchy, cutty kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. So they take this truck of illicit crisps to the uh, <laughs> local meth dealer, there's a local uh, like trailer park full of meth heads where you go to move all your ill-gotten gains. And they fence the truck and make some money. And even better than that, they're allowed to keep the crisps. They have to give the guy a dollar back and he gives them the, the crisps as a result. So they go and sit outside the front of one of their houses on this reservation um, selling these chips, these crisps to the neighborhood. When they're interrupted by the local police officer, Big. Uh, officer Big, played by Zahn McLaren who is... I know John McClellan, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it turns up in a lot of... If you need a Native American for a movie production, he turns up in a lot of them. He's got those very striking features, the braids. badass stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he plays Officer Big, and Officer Big is not particularly clever and can't seem to figure it out that despite the fact that these kids were very obviously just selling a huge number of suspicious crisps to everyone in the neighborhood, <laughs> and there's been a truck gone recently that was full of crisps. <laughs> and also there's been a lot of copper thieving in the area by some random gang of kids, but he just can't quite put anything together. And these kids are essentially uh, performing their illicit acts. They're robbing, they're stealing, they're doing all this small town hoodlumery, if you like to put some money together because they all want to get out of Dodge. They want to get out of this pokey little reservation and move to California where they think that they can make it and make something of themselves. So they're pooling all of this cash they're making from illicit activities. Until one afternoon, they are walking down the street when they are attacked by a rival gang driving past in a car who perform a drive-by on them with paintball guns. And we get a... It's another gang of uh, small-town teenagers and we get this sequence where there's like a slow motion drive-by and Bear does like, you know the uh, Willem Dafoe in Platoon? Yeah. Where he throws his arms up in the air and falls down in slow motion to the, all these paintball bullets splashing off of She's them. She's kind of sounding sound a bit like sort of Native American Bugsy Malone. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> but it, they all fall to the ground, ostensibly dead, even though they've just been paintballed. And suddenly Bear finds himself sort of levitating 
and floating backwards across the ground. We mentioned Gladiator earlier. You know when uh, Maximus finds himself you know, raised off of the arena floor and floats, so you've got the, the overhead shot of the ground moving underneath him. Obviously, something spiritual and unique is yeah. happening. And he sits up in a very washed-out grey world. It's the reservation as he knows it, but all the colours are different. And who approaches but a Native American warrior on horseback on his painted horse? This is William Spirit Knife Man, played by Dallas Goldtooth, who tells him that he is an ancient Indian warrior and he was fighting at Custer's last stand. Uh, Well, not actually fighting because uh, he rode his horse down the hill. His horse tripped over a gopher hole and killed him. And now he exists in the spirit world, which he's not particularly happy with because the spirit world is very cold and his nipples are always hard. (laughs) And he tells Bear (laughs) that given his ancestry and given his history, that he needs to try better as a man. He needs to be a warrior. And being a warrior is about being brave. And it's not about committing this small town hoodlumery, this small town crime. He needs to honor his ancestors. He needs to be stronger. Uh, And then his horse collapses and he's fucked. (laughs) (laughs) And so Bear wakes back up out of his trance and realizes that perhaps the life he's leading at the moment is not the right moral path, the moral choice. He decides that wouldn't it be better to stay on the reservation. And although he's still going to hang out with his small time gang, he's going to try and do some good in the world. So on the up and up with that, fairly simple. Sounds yeah, pretty straightforward, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a comedy show. However, the thing that I absolutely love about it is how low key it is. I mean, it is really, really like comedy in a minor key. I thought it was actually quite light on gags. In fact, it is quite light on gags the whole way through uh, until William Spirit Knife Man turned up and just absolutely killed it immediately. It's Taika Waititi doing that same mechanic that he did in Jojo Rabbit. You know, where Hitler was Jojo's best friend, is you know, his imaginary friend that follows him around. And it's hilarious, but he's giving all this advice that may be the right advice, maybe the wrong advice, but he's sort of this comedy imaginary character coming in. What I love about this, though, is that although this is a mechanic that Taika Waititi has used before, in this, he does very, very tiny drops of it. The little drops of Tabasco sauce in what is otherwise quite a comforting soup. That's what I got out of this more than anything else. There's something bittersweet and warming about it that is very, very delicate. So is it a lot more of a dramedy then? It, I would say, describing it as a comedy, I would say is right because there are some really, really good gags in it. But it, I mean, it made me laugh out loud at multiple points. When a gag hits, it really, really works. And with Taika Waititi co-helming, I mean, that's sort of a given. Mm. What I wasn't expecting to find was this bittersweet, almost maudlin element to parts of it because it's trying very desperately to, to root itself in reality and it is succeeding. You can feel that this, these are stories that have come from reality. And they're so, uh, the humor is so absurdist at points that it, it touches reality. You know, something so absurd, it, it becomes true because absurdism yeah. exists in real life. That dynamic is very carefully balanced in this. And it's going through some heavy themes as well. We're talking about um, absentee fathers. We're talking about um, 
the Native American people being, oh, you have the, the sheer concept of a, a reservation. You know, they've all been pushed off to this bit of land that wasn't originally theirs and not the land they wanted, but now they've been forced to deal with it. Poverty within the community, uh, alcoholism and drug abuse. These are all really, really heavy themes that the show treats with a absurdist, humorous touch. But the sadness of those themes still is there. It still exists. It's a show of duality, almost. There's two major themes running on it. And the way it switches between what is ostensibly a, a, quite a sad tale. I mean, they, the kids keep referencing a, uh, a member of their gang, a member of their group that died a year previously, Daniel. And little bits more are revealed um, throughout the plot as to, as to what happened to Daniel. But the fact that it's got these sad, depressive undercurrents running in this town that is actually very genuinely impoverished, and it's using dashes of absurdist humor in between to create what ends up being a lighthearted and pleasant experience. Like I said, this show made me smile the whole way through it. It's just such a delicate piece of writing. I expected it to be much more of a sledgehammer comedy, Taika Waititi's wit, you know, what we do in the shadows, all those kind of stuff. I expected more of that. And what I found instead was something actually touching. And those little dashes of humor, it works all the better for cutting through what, you know, if you were to do it straight, if you were to do it about just life on a reservation, this would actually be quite a, um, like I said, a maudlin kind of piece. There is that almost depressive aspect of the conditions these people are living in and, and what their culture has been reduced to over years of you know, Western bullying essentially, and what the Native American people were subjected to. The show deals with all those themes, with those little slashes and dashes of absurdism, just liven it up, and they give it a kick, and they give it a wake up. And I just thought it was stunning, really, really stunning, to, to be able to hold that delicate balance all the way through and to make it... I, I felt like the show was teetering and seesawing and tiptoeing its way through these subjects, but still actually dealing with them. Mm. And I'm not sure how you manage to do that in terms of writing. It's a show that it, any other creators, I think, would... I think it's that combination of having an, an actual Native American guy who grew up on a reservation and Taika Waititi coming in. And I've seen like, interviews with Taika Waititi. I was watching some today, actually, where he said, I was determined on this to, um, out of the co-creator partnership, be the one that sat back a little bit. And I'll deal with the funny stuff and you deal with what it's actually like to be on a reservation and we'll put the two together. You can feel that in the show. You can feel Taika Waititi leaning back and just letting the comedy come in at points where it feels naturalistic and snappy and appropriate, you know? Yeah. I just think, wow, how the hell do you pull that off? It's a really subtle piece of work that you can watch on two levels. What it reminded me of actually more than anything it sits somewhere between Letterkenny and Atlanta. Did you ever watch Atlanta with Don Glover? I can't say I have, unfortunately. That's another great one to check out. And it's got that sort of, uh, well, you know, Atlanta isn't really a small town, but it's got that sort of everyday reality blown up to the absurd kind of thing. And Letterkenny's got the small town, fast-paced gags, silly absurdist humor thing going on. It sits somewhere in between those two. And to my mind, those are two of the greatest comedy series. I mean, Atlanta's stretching a bit for a comedy, even though there are a lot of jokes in it. But those are two of the greatest series going at the moment. And um, Reservation Dogs sits right in the middle of it. And, yeah, we're on a film podcast, so speaking mostly to film fans. There are a million movie references in it as well. They had a great amount of fun going, that's a bit from Reservoir Dogs, that's a bit from Platoon. You know, it's throwing in all those little, almost like Easter eggs for people that have a, like a knowledge of film history. So a really compelling, brilliant piece of work. Really loved it. 
One of the best things on TV I've seen this year. I've said that a couple of times this year, but there you go. I keep finding great stuff and Reservation Dogs. Well, you said is one, one of the best things. One of, yeah. You know, there can I qualified be, it. There can be many of them. Yeah. There can be a million of them. Well, wait for our end of year roundup and I'll tell you them all. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, you know, delicate and poignant and funny in all the right doses. It's just got that mix just about right. Brilliant stuff. That sounds good, man. That's, mm. Yeah. Okay, then. Well, as usual, let's finish out the podcast with some trivia. And I, I had a fun afternoon doing this, actually, because there's so much of it. I think you know, we could do a whole podcast of this sort of trivia. And I'm sure there are podcasts devoted to it. And if you know of any, link them to me at Cast on Twitter, because I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to hear them. But I thought we'd do Native American trivia. Native American trivia? Mm. Mm. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, because I mean, there is just so much to it. And it's... One of those things is where you, if you fall down the Native American trivia rabbit hole, as I did this afternoon, there is so much of it that is really genuinely intriguing and interesting. Some of it quite funny and a lot of it very, very sad as well. I mean, the um, what, what's been done to the Native American people over their lifetimes, I knew some of it already, but getting into details with it is um, pretty horrendous. So I've tried to do a bit of light and shade. Infuriating. Yes, infuriating, definitely. So I've, I've tried to do a bit of light and shade on this one go between interesting and some of the darker stuff and some of the more amusing stuff as well. But let's start out with this. According to the 2010 census, 5.2 million people in the United States are identified as American Indian and Alaskan Native, either alone or in combination with one or more other races, comprising 1.7% of the total population. Of the American Indian and Alaskan Natives, the largest tribe was the Cherokee, with a population of 819,000, followed by the Navajo, Choctaw, Mexican-American Indian, Chippewa, Sioux, Apache, and Blackfoot. Wow. 5.2 million people. That's more than I thought, actually. I thought, do you know what? I thought there were only, uh, like, uh, in terms of registered, you know, demographic, in terms of, uh, you know, the statistics of officialdom, mm. I thought there was couple of million, yeah, I would two, have, 2.5 at a push. I would have said about I that I never realized well. it was 5 million. I mean, it's still, that's a very, very minute number. Um, of people. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's twice as many as I thought there were. Yeah, so. yeah, me too. Native Americans and First Nations people speaking a language of the Algonquin group were the first to meet English explorers and consequently many words from these languages entered English. For example, caribou, snow shoveler, chipmunk, red squirrel, moccasin, moose, muskrat, opossum, papoose, pecan, powwow, raccoon, Skunk, score, toboggan, totem, wigwam, and woodchuck. All Native American words. <clears throat> oh, the, um, skunk, by the way, means to urinate. To urinate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> a possum means a white dog. It's, it's interesting. The uh, uh, powwow means to dream and to have a vision. What does chipmunk mean? It doesn't say on chipmunk. Yeah, it doesn't have the Oh, sorry. No, chipmunk was the red squirrel. Oh, red squirrel. Red squirrel. Oh, right. Yeah. Countless Americans grew up reading The Education of Little Tree. Said to be a memoir of Forrest Carter's childhood living with his Cherokee grandmother and part Cherokee grandfather, the book was praised for decades, taught in schools, and even recommended by Oprah. However, in 1991, historian Dan T. Clark proved in the New York Times what many had long suspected, that the book was a hoax written by Asa Carter, a white supremacist and one-time Ku Klux Klan member. Well, that took a left turn. Yeah. So I, well, I've never read the book, but one can only presume that there's actually got some uh, uh, some racist sentiment in there. I don't know. Wait, what? 
But it was, so a white supremacist and Ku Klux Klan member wrote an, an ostensible Native American memoir mm. that was disseminated by Oprah. Yeah, and was uh, taught in American schools. Apparently, it's quite common as a part of your syllabus. <sighs> okay, that. Yeah, the mind boggles, right? <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, absolutely bizarre. Fuck. Right, okay. <laughs> I'm going to need to try and process that. This one kind of blew my mind. When your teacher taught you, I presume this is talking to people from the US. When your teacher taught you about the pilgrims of the Mayflower, you probably heard something about Squanto, a member of a tribe who helped them survive. What many history books fail to say is that Squanto was equipped to help the pilgrims because he learned English after being kidnapped. Squanto was abducted by English explorer George Weymouth who took him to Britain as an exhibit for his financial backers. It was here he learned English. He was later returned to his homeland, only to be abducted by Englishman Thomas Hunt, who sold him into slavery in Spain. He was eventually returned, only to find his entire tribe had been killed by smallpox. It was only after this that he came into contact with the Mayflower passengers. Wow. What a life that guy led, right? Jesus Christ, man. And now he's sort of a footnote of American history as well. He's like, oh yeah, well, yeah, with the Thanksgiving and everything, Squanto was there and he could translate the... But yeah, he was kidnapped twice and, and sold into slavery. And it's just the, the subjugation of the Native American people is just heartbreaking. Really, really is. Oh, and he's, you know, he's sort of, and he could translate. I'm surprised he didn't want to butcher every single motherfucker that stepped off that body. Yeah, and to get back and find your entire... Literally your entire tribe was wiped out by smallpox, which is a disease... Um, yeah, I, Pretty, pretty sure on this. It was this disease originally brought over by the settlers themselves. I mean, the you wouldn't blame him for having a grudge. It's like, it's like in, um, I mean, not in the original novel, but in Michael Mann's rendition of Last of the Mohicans, and everyone's like, Mugwai's so evil. It's like, do you listen to what he's been through? Because mm. I think if you would experience the same thing, you might have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. <laughs> this is a nice one. There's a nice little bit of trivia. Next time, uh, well, it'll be next summer you'll be able to use this. The word barbecue is from the Arawakan Indian language and it means framework of sticks. Oh, well. Yeah. Holy shit. No idea. Barbecue is just, is just the most common Western word, isn't it? Is, uh, yeah. Like, l- looking at barbecue, well, I suppose barbecue with the, because sometimes you, you see it like spelt with a C or a Q. Mm. Well, I've often spelled, like, seen it spelt with, like, you know, the Q-U-E. And when I look at that word, I just, for some reason, I think, like, is that a French word etymologically? But no, it's... Uh, I hear it's spelt with the C, but I don't, I don't know if the... Maybe that is a French spelling. I don't know. But yeah. I don't know. I didn't know that. This is ironic. The word Sioux was adopted by French explorers who picked it up from the Chippewa tribe. Sioux is the Chippewa word for enemy, who actually were the Lakota people. So the Sioux are actually the Lakota, a name that means where the people of peace dwell. So <laughs> <laughs> they're known as the Sioux tribe to this day. Literally, just who are those guys? Well, they're the enemy. Oh, the Sioux. <laughs> okay, yeah. Christ. When <laughs> their name actually means the people of peace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, I don't know what I mean. Sort of, I mean, it's kind of hilarious in a like sort of a ironically stinging way because. It's brutal just to have your actual, the name of your peoples just eroded in, yeah, in, yeah. in favour of a, a slanderous term. You know? yeah. And my last one here, and this ties very nicely in with being a film podcast. Popcorn has long been associated with the movies, or in recent years, the microwave. But although many of us have wondered why popcorn pops, 
few of us have asked where popcorn actually came from. The indigenous people of the Americas first domesticated the strain of maize which produces popcorn thousands of years ago. In fact, popcorn artifacts dating back to 6,700 years ago were discovered in Peru. So the next time you grab a handful of your favourite snack, remember it's not just Orville Redenbacher you should be thanking. I like popcorn. Yes. I know, I know it's a cliche, but I do eat a shit ton of popcorn. Yeah, it, <laughs> it needs to be done when you go to the cinema, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, Anything. It's but I, the other thing, I, I, I will, you know, like popcorn is not just for Schwarzenegger films. I'll, I'll, I'll eat fucking a big bottle of popcorn and I'm watching something by Christoph Kozlowski. Mm. You know, popcorn is just a given. Some people might find that very lowbrow, but fuck them. No, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> you take pry my popcorn out of my cold, dead hands. Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. And only with butter and salt as well. None of that sweet shit. Or the worst, sweet and salty. No, 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 no. Has to be yeah. salty. Popcorn must be savory. Yeah, I'm with you. I do not you can like... have cheese popcorn, that's fine. Do you remember that um, habanero popcorn we had once? That was good. That was really that good. Was good. But no, but yeah, what did you say, like buttery and salted? Yes. 10 out of 10 marks. Yeah, yeah. That, that is the correct the... answer. People will be so angry about this, by the way. They'll be more angry about this than anything we've ever said. But I will. Well, they're fight, not correct. I will fight you to the death. It's okay, you know. It's okay to be wrong as long as you acknowledge it. <laughs> yeah. Butter and salt, motherfuckers. <laughs> anyway, on that note, that brings us to the end of our free podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. We're off to record the premium podcast now. Uh, Liam, I believe you've got more extra takes. I do indeed. I got. Um, I got four left over from last week that I didn't get into, and also. One of our good friends on Twitter has reminded me that I mentioned something a few episodes back that referenced um, one of my most beloved creations, which is Cracker, starring Robbie Coltrane. And I've actually been re-watching loads of Cracker, and I really, really wanted to give it a plug because there may be a lot of modern audiences who are not familiar with it. Cool. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's a very, very fine piece of television. I'm also going to debut a brand new segment on the premium podcast this week. I haven't really come up with an effective title for it yet. We might think of it while we're doing it. But it suddenly struck me the other night that uh, everyone's got ideas for film plots, right? Yes. And lots and lots of people like to post these ideas for film plots on the internet. Certainly do. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to go through a few and see what we think? Yes. Both Both good and bad. I think if you put it up on the internet in a forum post or whatever, then you're essentially putting it up to be judged. You have excited me, sir. And we're going to judge some of these film plots. Some of them I think are quite good. Some of them really aren't. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to have some fun uh, playing around with, uh, well, your fantastical films. I don't know. Like I said, I haven't come up with a title yet. We will by the end of the podcast, I'm sure. But yes, if any of that sounds good to you, please do check out. Terrible ideas from Nutter's segment. Yes, was some of those definitely fall out of that <laughs> But yes, thank you for listening to the Cinematalist podcast. Please do check out cinematalist.com for a link to our Patreon page. If you'd like access to our premium content, please come and follow us at Cinematalcast. You can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Lovely. And uh, yeah, I think that's around about it. See you next week on the free one. Hope to see you on the premium stuff. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>